Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Welcome to another episode of On Air Actually Rocket Science. Today we embark on an exciting expedition to a place where only 12 humans have ever set foot on. It has been over 50 years since the last Apollo lunar module touched its dusty surface. NASA's Artemis program is reviving crude lunar exploration and it's not just the US planning human and robotic missions to Earth's only natural satellite. Nations around the world are racing to get access to Moon and its resources. I'm Benedict, and sitting right next to me is none other than Mikkel, my Hello. crew member for today. We're excited about today's guest, holding the Professorship of Lunar and Planetary Exploration at TUM. His research is focusing on the exploration and extraction of space resources on the Moon and other celestial bodies. You will guide us on this voyage, and we are happy to welcome you, Professor Philipp Reis. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hello. As always, we will start with a quick round of this or that. So the first one would be Apollo or Artemis? Artemis. The second one, rover missions or crewed missions? Rover. Interstellar or the Martian? Interstellar, I would say. Ah, interesting. Um, Earth day length or moon day length? Well, definitely Earth length. And the last one is chemistry or physics? Physics. That, that took, that took uh, a second to think. Yeah, actually, I mean, th those are quite interesting questions already. Uh, and we could talk about these uh, just, uh, just for the entirety of the podcast, I guess. Yeah, but I think we need to go on because we will have a tight schedule for today because there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. Let's um, take a gl glimpse on your career path before um, up to this point. So um, to summarize it, you began with mechanical engineering um, with aerospace focus in Bremen, followed by an aerospace master's degree in Munich. And then you went on one further step and um, completed your doctoral thesis on in situ thermal extraction of volatiles from lunar regolith in 2019, so um, talking about your motivation, what initially uh, sparked your interest in lunar and planetary exploration? That um, we're starting with studying mechanical engineering. Um, I wanted to become an engineer. Um, I think what first attracted me was um, the um, uh, well, the aer aeronautical world. So building airplanes, flying airplanes. Um, during my bachelor program, I think um, the focus um, switched quite quickly to to space, um, to the final frontier, because um, um, my view of that was always. Um, you know, in, in your career later on, um, you, you need to be motivated. Uh, you need to um, be fascinated by what you're doing. And space exploration is the only thing I can think about that, that would really keep me motivated throughout my career. So that was what, um, I, I guess, drove me towards uh, space. And um, yeah, I focused in lunar research um, during, um, yeah, during part of my studies already uh, with internships, um, in, in, in companies, Airbus, for instance, uh, where I was involved in lunar lander development at the time. Um, 
and yeah i decided at some point um to pursue a phd in that topic um and um i was lucky enough that the that the time uh, was right so currently we are in this uh, as you already mentioned in this second uh well some call it space race or the race to the moon um it's quite exciting times um there's also more opportunities to um do phd postdoc um to work in that field actually than there used to be 10 20 years ago and um yeah so the natural path brought me to um to lunar exploration and um yeah the place where i'm right now yeah that's also the reason for all of us students uh, choosing to study here after completion of your thesis at tum you worked as a research fellow for the european space agency um could you explain us what was your role there and uh, what did you work on right so um a research fellow um at isa is a is a postdoc position uh, i was um part of the lunar lander team as they call it so um this is a, a very small team within isa uh, within isa and they are working on lunar missions or instrument developments contribution to um, to lunar missions so actual flight uh, missions not only concept studies but the, the things that actually will fly and um so my role there was to support this team um from the scientific perspective um because i was um uh doing research on lunar volatiles on lunar water um uh, prospecting um instrumentation and this is exactly what this team um built in isa or is still building and um so my role was more um the role of a scientist to um to advise um the team to also work in the in- on the interface between the science and the engineering um of the instrument development um but also to supervise uh, my own uh, research activities um with consortia across europe um so um that was a quite quite exciting time so i was at estec isa estec in the netherlands this is the biggest site of isa um across europe and um this is actually the place where well everybody goes um that has ever to do with with missions um just to some extent so because it's a huge site there's uh, lots of experts there there's um testing facilities there so it's a really nice place to um and and environment to work in yeah so if i get it correctly there's uh, much of in- input to to get there is there some particularly memorable experience from there well um so i the, the thing that that um strikes me still today when i have to deal with isa uh, folks there um that the level of expertise they have and the level of prof- professionality that they have there so um and the motivation that that you can feel there in the um in the isa family as they call it so um uh, it's all about space uh, and um in the directorate where i was in in human ex- and robotic exploration it's all about exploration so um you really feel that spirit and of course um the fact that at one point we had uh, for instance juice um so the the jupiter mission that is currently um in in transit and um on the way to jupiter um was tested during the time when i was there and um uh, my my office was just opposite the the large thermal vacuum uh, chambers where this in where the where the mission was in so the spacecraft um was being tested there and it was just like 50 100 meters or so um uh from my office so um this is th- that was quite impressive to to uh, to be aware of the fact that such a spacecraft is is uh, is now um right beside my office and uh, will fly to Jupiter in the next year yeah that really things s- like that happen like every day 
<laughs> that really sounds amazing. Then your next step was going back to TUM and um, follow um, on with your academic career. Um, what motivated you to return to TUM after your time at TISA? So there's not so many opportunities um, in academia um, um, to, to work in space exploration, right? So um, this is um, a very um, special opportunity or has been a very special opportunity. And I always wanted to go or to, to, to stay in academia, to do research, um, also to do teaching um, because um, I very much enjoy, you know, um, the whole educational aspect um, and, and the research aspect. And um, so that was um, one opportunity and um, probably the only opportunity for many years. So, um, and I knew Tum from before. Uh, I like it very much uh, living here and, and working here in the Munich area. Um, I like the mountains. Um, I like the uh, Munich as a city and as an environment. So um, yeah, that was the perfect fit. Yeah, definitely sounds like a plan. So you already talked about that there's lots of new stuff going on. Could you maybe provide us with a quick overview over the current state of lunar and planetary exploration? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that's um, it's actually not very easy because uh, there's so much going on right now. So in, in our lectures, for instance, um, we have um, at the beginning of each lecture, I give this brief overview of what has happened in the past week. We call it this week in space exploration. And there's always something to tell. Um, this shows you that there's a lot going on right now. So initially um, in 2023, uh, so this year, um, it was planned that, um, I don't know, three or four missions to the moon will launch um, commercial ones, but also instit institutional ones. Um, there has been some delays, um, so some slipped to the next year. Um, but just recently, last Friday, um, we saw the launch of the uh, Indian mission Chandrayaan-3. Um, so we hope this will uh, be success. Uh, we already saw one failure earlier today by the commercial iSpace lander. Uh, we have two or three more commercial missions coming up. Um, they probably won't take place um, this year, but beginning of next year. Um, so there's a lot happening. Um, now to, to figure out what is happening there um, in terms of uh, overall structure, um, I, I think we have to reflect a bit what what is actually happening in terms of programs and um, how the whole situation changes when, with respect to commercial missions. So of course Artemis uh, is something um, everybody knows, right? Um, so Artemis is a program It's part of a larger architecture, the Moon-to-Mars architecture, and it's driven by the US. There's also um, this um, commercial approach driven by the US um, called the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLIPS for short. Um, this is a program where um, NASA um, buys in transport capabilities from companies um, to deliver their payloads to the moon. And as part of that, there's a few launches coming up. This um, is a new approach, uh, which still has to be um, tested and still has to work properly. Ultimately, it will speed up things, it will save cost. Um, it, it'll be much easier to transport something to the lunar surface for us as scientists as well, uh, but also um, humans, uh, of course. So this is, so CLIPS is sort of a, a part of the, the overall architecture. Um, from the US-driven perspective. Europe tries to play a role in that, um, providing um, critical elements to the overall program, like elements for the, the lunar gateway, the station around the moon, 
potentially also a cargo lander called Argonaut, uh, but also scientific instruments. Uh, we don't, as of now, have our own lunar lander or, well, lunar exploration program um, for that matter. So we have an overall exploration program in ESA called the Terry Nove, which includes um, LEO, Beyond LEO, Moon and Mars. These are the four cornerstones. With respect to what, what else is going on, so the um, uh, ISRO, the Indian Space Agency, just launched a mission. Um, so they are also keen on getting to the moon. The Russians uh, will launch a mission in August uh, called Luna 25. Um, so they have their own um, lunar exploration program. And um, there's um, China, of course, uh, which has been very successful over the recent years with lunar landings and lunar missions. Um, they have recently successfully performed the sample return. Um, they will perform the next sample return with Chang'e 6 mission. Um, and they, they are um, astonishingly successful with their missions. So um, this is um, a very strong program. That's, that's the, the major players in lunar exploration right now. So as you see, a lot is happening. Um, there's a lot of international collaboration going on, um, which is something completely different um, as compared to the, the former race to the moon uh, in, in the 60s, 70s. Um, so yeah, the whole perspective has changed a bit, uh, but there's a lot going on. You already mentioned the new participants of the new space race, like India or China. What can we expect from them in the future? So, um, I mean, from China, they have a very long-term, uh, a long-term roadmap. So they plan in um, decades, right? Not as for us, we plan in terms of uh, three years, four years uh, legislation periods. Uh, it's very, a very politically driven um, uh, endeavor. For China, um, I think we can count on them uh, fulfilling their goals in the next year. So um, they are planning. So I think they are now in the uh, what they call the third phase of their program uh, with establishing, um, well, ultimately to establish a base there um, on the moon. And currently the main objective is um, to, to return samples to also learn in the South Pole area because um, no one has ever landed there. And... Um, yeah, so I think we can uh, expect a lot happening from them. Um, the Indian um, mission that is has just been launched is um, well, they so they have an orbiter and a lander. Um, the last lander of the Chandrayaan two mission um, unfortunately crashed. So of course they want to um, um, repeat this attempt to land softly on the moon and. Um, and uh, um, yeah, use the rover to explore the lunar surface. They are also targeting the South uh, Pole area, which is a, a first. Actually, no one's ever landed there or put a rover um, um, there. Uh, so um, yeah, this is what to expect immediately. And um, so from the other players, apart from the US um, slash European collaborations. What are some challenges of landing the rover at the South side of the, or the far side of the moon? Well, as it stands, um, landing is the biggest challenge for lunar missions um, because we saw lots of failure in the past. Um, the very recent one uh, of the iSpace mission, we had the Israeli mission a couple of years ago, 2019, I believe it was, uh, with the Bereshit uh, lander, and we had the Chandran 2 failure. So apparently this is um, still a big technical um, challenge or, yeah, 
or operational challenge. And um, for the South Polar area uh, on the moon in particular, uh, the terrain is challenging. Um, also the terrain in combination with the lighting conditions um, because it's it's rougher terrain. We have lots of craters um, there. The craters are interesting to explore. Um, this is why we want to go there. And um, yeah, so um, there are a few, a few challenges um, that are just there in general, but there are a few special ones depending on where you want to go. Yeah. And the last space race, uh, only governmental institutions were involved. And this time, or nowadays, we have also private companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin um, that are yeah, contributing to these uh, missions. Uh, how do you assess their influence? So the, the influence of the private companies is, um, <clears throat> is critical. The US will not be able to land a person on the moon without um, the contribution of, for instance, SpaceX. So they're counting on SpaceX to land humans on the moon. So um, the companies are now in the critical path of the mission, of the overall architecture of, um, of the US. Um, so their influence is uh, naturally quite high. You said NASA or USA needs uh, SpaceX as like for the rockets, but they have the Artemis missions. Why can't they use them only? Or what so, is the benefits of the private companies? So in, in general, the idea is um, that you can um, make things um, quicker and cheaper and spread the risk, basically. Um, in comparison to developing one single big launcher or one big um, lander, you have multiple um, providers of that. So the risk is reduced and... Um, if you um, if you adjust as an agency to the um, um, to how the, the companies work, um, you can also potentially speed up things in terms of uh, realizing the missions. Yeah, and the, this or that questions you picked, uh, Artemis. What uh, improvements of technology do we have for at Artemis that we didn't have at Apollo? In terms of technological advancements. I think there's a there's a lot. I would more draw it to the political um, differences uh, or the um, the differences in how we how we approach the missions uh, because this is the the main thing that that changed, right? So, whereas Apollo was only about um, for, from the U.S. perspective to to beat the um, the Soviets um, in reaching the moon, um, this is not the goal anymore. So the goal, the objective, is now to explore, to perform science. Um, to also collaborate internationally. Um, this is the main uh, difference um, as, as compared and or the main advancements advancement that has taken place um, over the over these uh, 50 or 60 years. So in terms of um, technology, I mean the um, the, the architecture is um, is very much different. Um, so now we have an element, uh, such as the gateway that uh, would allow us to perform science in lunar orbit, but also to access the um, the surface or perform lab analysis on the gateway as compared to returning samples back to Earth before analyzing them. So um, this is a new element. The capability of landing uh, really large masses on the moon with an HLS, so the spaceship, uh, of, of SpaceX or the Blue Moon uh, or the Argonaut um, is also new. Um, so we want to establish an infrastructure there. 
on the moon and around the moon. And um, this requires new technology, new launcher capability, um, yeah, um, new flexibility. And um, so that is that is new, uh, first and foremost. So there's smaller technological ch um, advancements um, as compared to the last space race. And of course, they are on all levels, basically. So um, there has been... Um, so, I mean, systems operating on the lunar surface now have to be or can be autonomous, for instance, can be teleoperated. So you don't um, require humans everywhere in the loop. Uh, of course, you still require them, but um, there's a lot more um, that can be done autonomously. Um, the whole landing uh, will be done autom autonomously. We have hazard detection and avoidance, for instance. So no one has to fly um, a landing vehicle manually any longer. These are just a few examples of what has been um, taking place in terms of advancements. Yeah. Now we're getting straight into your research field and focus on IRSRU. We should clarify first for everyone what RSIU incorporates. So what is RSIU and how would you define it? Okay, so um, ISRU stands for In-Situ Resource Utilization. Uh, that means that um, you don't bring all the resources with you on a space mission, uh, but you find them uh, where you are, so in situ. Uh, you uh, mine them, you extract them, uh, and you utilize them. So this is in situ resource utilization. Uh, I should say there's also another term called SRU, spa uh, space resource utilization. That is a more of a broader term that also means that you could potentially mine asteroids and bring them back to Earth to use um, metals, for instance, or so precious metals. Uh, but for ISRU, in situ resource utilization, uh, the main scope is to use the resources right where you find it, uh, meaning in space. So there are different steps of ISRU. Um, the first one would be um, starting with the mining, the prospecting. And um, you brought um, you brought uh, some device today. Could you explain what this is? Yeah. Um, so naturally, the, uh, the first step in what we call the ISRU value chain um, because ultimately we derive a product that we cannot use or sell. Um, the first step is uh, prospecting. So prospecting means basically finding, detecting resources. Uh, after prospecting comes the exploration. Um, exploration means um, assessing the value of the resource. But prospecting is the first step. So what I have here is a, uh, an instrumented drill. Uh, it's hollow in the inside. Um, there's a, a central heating element inside and um, there's a mass spectrometer that you don't see because it's not connected, um, but which would be connected to that. Drill, yeah, I, right? I, I can okay. imagine, <laughs> yes. So what we try to do with this instrument, uh, once it's on the lunar surface, is we put it on a rover, for instance, and uh, then we drill um, down to 10, 15 centimeters depth, and we heat the uh, material that is enclosed by the drill, and by heating, um, volatile species uh, will be extracted. Um, so everything that um, is temperature sensitive, like for instance, water. And uh, with a mass spectrometer, we will be able to um, characterize what is in the shallow subsurface. And um, so the idea is um, we use the rover um, to um, drive um, through an area and take multiple samples uh, and therefore map potentially the resources that are there. Um, and uh, with that map, we can then further go into the next phase of exploration. 
Okay, so now we're we're not on moon, we're on the earth. And uh, we have this drill right here. Um, I guess there needs to be some method to kind of simulate the lunar regolith um, to to test out these devices, those drills in, in your lab right here. Right. Um, so um, we have, of course, real lunar regolith. So regolith is the term for the lunar uh, rocky material, um, the soil. Um, we have real um, regolith brought back by the Apollo astronauts, um, but also the, the Soviet missions, but also the Chinese mission. But this is very um, expensive. And, and you, cannot just, uh, you cannot just only, um, you know, um, go to the curation facility and, uh, and take it. Um, so you have to apply for that. You have to write a proposal, what you are going to do with that. You have to make sure, um, in some cases, not to destroy the material or to alter it. Um, so for our purposes, this is not a solution, but it's also not necessary because we can simulate regolith uh, with so-called simulants or analog material. And that is just um, also rocky material um, uh, that has um, a the same or a similar enough composition. Um, also in terms of particle size distribution, angularity of the particles, um, physical properties. There is a variety of simulants available nowadays from different sources um, and um, this can be used for instance to um, perform the drill test. Okay and now um, before prospecting um, so some resources how do scientists identify potential um, resource rich areas on the moon? Because first you need to find some landing site for the lunar lander and um, say, yeah, that, that is a good location to find interesting resources. Yeah, so this is also part of the uh, prospecting campaign now, if you will. Um, so um, this is done mainly through remote sensing. So uh, through spacecraft in, uh, in lunar orbit uh, that, for instance, um, take uh, reflectance um, spectroscopy and um, thereby identify minerals at the surface. There's also other uh, other techniques um, that um, that penetrate through um, the surface layers and can sense, for instance, um, uh, materials in the shadow subsurface like radar. Um, so there's a whole different set of techniques um, that is um, also employed um, for planetary science in general, but also Earth observation that we can use uh, on the moon. And by that we find sites um, of uh, of interest in the ter uh, in terms of uh, prospecting for lunar water. Um, it's a bit difficult because we have um, only a few measurements from orbit. Um, some of them are also contradictory, uh, but uh, there's a trend. So we we think we know where to drill for water. Um, why is the water on Moon so interesting? Because I mean, there's plenty of water on Earth. Um, why is it so so interesting and important to um, really um, characterize this water moon and to analyze it? Yeah, so there's um, two sides um, to, to that. So the one is the scientific interest because you want to know um, where the water is, where it came from, so the origin, the form, the abundance, um, how it varies. Um, so this is all these are all questions that we don't have an answer to. Um, so this is the first um, that the scientific interest to um, to characterize um, water on the moon. The other interest is, um, of course, um, uh, economically 
because uh, ultimately water is a resource that is used by um, humans on the moon in the lunar base that is also um, used to make propellant um, to drive rockets and it's uh, much cheaper to um, to get that water from the moon uh, as compared to the earth. Um, there, there are those ideas to get water on a large scale and then um, transfer it um, to rocket propellants to have some hub to store it to other plants, um, yeah, especially exactly. um, plants to go to Mars from, from there. Yeah. How feasible would this be? Oh, it's, um, I mean, technologically it's very feasible. Um, of course, there are a few challenges along the way, but um, I think it's it's not actually not too difficult. So, I mean, the, the whole idea, as you correctly mentioned, um, is to build up fuel depots uh, on the moon or in lunar orbit. Because bringing it there from the moon is much more cheaper than uh, bringing it there from the Earth, right? And um, technologically, you would just have to find water to access it. So you need some sort of drill, uh, mining device, depending on how the water exists. If it's at the surface in terms of uh, like a frost layer, you would need something like a dome structure um, to heat it, extract it, and collect it. Collect it. If it's in the subsurface, of course, you need to drill, excavate it somehow. Um, in any case, you will always have to um, separate the water from the regolith or from contaminants. So this is one of the um, yeah bigger challenges, perhaps. And um, yeah, then also the um, the storage of the products, uh, if it's water or if it's uh, hydrogen and oxygen, um, can be a challenge um, because of temperature issues or um, meteoroid impacts or other hazards that exist on the lunar surface. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I would like to focus a bit more on this um, second aspect in this ISRU chain, um, the characterizing. Could you um, give some more details about what is involved in this characterizing step and um, yeah, um, which um, instruments are used to characterize the, maybe water or other resources? Mm. So when we talk about characterizing water, we what we um, mainly mean is to find out the um, isotope ratios because by that we can tell something about the origin of the water, where it came from um, in terms of where in the solar system. And um, so this is done by mass spectrometry um, as we have it here for the drill, but um, other systems that are more precise in terms of measuring isotopic ratios Uh, and um, for that, you need to thermally extract um, the water molecules. And um, for that, you use um, heated drills like that or um, small crucibles where you put the samples in and heat them up. And you do something that is called the evolved gas analysis um, to analyze gases that come off. And then you can also, with a more sophisticated instrument, um, characterize them, as I said. I see But uh, still, it uh, seems kind of highly technically involved to um, to bring those instruments there and then um, make sure that you characterize it correctly. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, so here on Earth, um, we use all these uh, all this analytical capability on a daily basis. Um, so this is not a challenge um, per se, but the, the challenge is to really, as you correctly said, it to miniaturize it to make it um, space ready, to make it radiation hard in terms of electronics. 
um, that is a challenge, um, and um, to make it work on low uh, on a low research uh, resource budget. Yeah, uh, meaning low. Um, you have um, less power available. You have less mass and volume in total. So the usual challenges of a space um, instrument. Um, but um, there are actually um, good examples of um, uh, of for instance, mass spectrometers has, that have been working in space also um, in other environments um, similar as the moon, um, similarly extreme as the moon. Okay. Um, apart from the water, because now we talked uh, much about um, characterizing water on the moon, but um, which other resources would be of interest? So um, the, the regolith, the soil itself, uh, is a pretty good resource uh, because, uh, one, you can extract oxygen from it, Uh, and two, you can use the regolith um, to build uh, structures. So you can build roads, landing pads, um, shelters, um, habitats. So you can you can make a lot out of the soil itself. Um, then, as I said, you can extract oxygen. You can extract metals too. You can um, also extract um, noble gases that were implanted by the solar wind. Is admittedly uh, one of the smaller resources, but um, so the regolith itself um, holds many um, potential products that we can use uh, in, in, in exploration. And of course, um, the sun itself is a resource on the moon um, because I can collect it nearly everywhere. Um, there are challenges uh, associated with that, for instance, the dust contamination. Um, but this is a very important resource uh, in terms of power provision. I also came across this isotope helium-free um, reading articles and saying this might be um, the reason um, why so many nations want to go to the moon. And what's your opinion on that? Well, naturally, if we can manage to um, to make um, helium-3 fusion or fusion in general work, um, this is a very tempting thought, right? Um, the, um, the abundance of helium-3 is not that high on the moon, actually. So um, we can also get it here on Earth. Um, problem is that the accessibility on Earth is is a is a problem because it's locked in the Earth's crust, um, so we cannot go just mine it uh, properly. Um, if we had a fusion reactor, um, then it might be worth uh, mining it on the Moon. But uh, we're speaking of uh, um, several parts per billion. Uh, in terms of quantity um, mm -hmm. in the regolith. So you have to mine huge amounts of, of regolith <clears throat> and to extract tiny little amounts of helium-3. Um, and you also need to um, uh, do something with everything else that you extract along the way. Um, so um, you would not only go for the helium-3 in that case, you would also try to collect other things that you will extract thermally uh, on the way to getting the helium-3. Um, to make it more um, um, uh, economically viable. Mm -hmm. yeah. So helium-3 um, is not the driving argument for lunar exploration or for ISO on the moon at all. Yes, um, okay, this, this definitely makes sense. But you said um, there could be also um, other resources obtained at the same time. Would there be any commercial interest or as of now is it just scientific interest in extracting and um, characterizing those resources? So the the one resource that is really um, interesting from a commercial perspective is the water because okay. it is more or less readily available and um, is needed by humans 
and rockets, if you will. So it's a it's just a, a very um, uh, useful resource because you can utilize it in so many ways. Um, and we're also um, so it's not it's not entirely new technologies that we need in order to um, to do that. Um, apart from that, I mean, on the from the commercial perspective, I think really it's the water that uh, that is most interesting. Um, because also other resources like extracting the oxygen from regolith uh, require um, a different infrastructure, also might require more power, might require resupply missions, so they're not fully independent. Um, uh, so, um, but we're currently thinking of different ways to establish a business case for the, for the mining of water. Um, and one idea here is that commercial entities would go to the moon, mine water, provide it in terms of, um, well, gas stations, uh, if you will, uh, on the moon or around the moon, and then agencies would buy the water from them. Um, agencies would be the anchor customer for this business case to kickstart an economy that evolves around that. Uh, and there is a really, um, this can be a really serious business and we're currently working on that. Of course, there are questions um, still to be answered. Um, the whole exploration of lunar water needs to take place in situ. We need to really know for sure what the abundances are, um, where the locations are, uh, and so on and so forth to, to really uh, convince uh, a commercial partner to go there and set up mm -hmm. a mining uh, endeavor. When thinking about this mining process, extracting resources from a celestial body in outer space, there's also some moral aspect to it. The legal framework surrounding this ISRU remain kind of ambiguous um, because there is this foundational outer space treaty um, of 1967, which is instrumental in guiding space law, but it does not explicitly address this lunar mining. And additionally, there's the moon treaty of 1979, aimed at preventing international conflicts that could happen on a place like Moon, where there's this interest for mining, maybe a commercial interest, um, but it wasn't ratified by any um, space powers, by, by any states that are influential in um, crew space flight. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Where, where does scientific research end and uh, commercial interest mm. come into play and how should this be regulated? That's a very hot topic right now. <laughs> um, And we speak about planetary protection, uh, essentially. Um, so whereas on Mars, we need to make sure that we don't bring in any species. Um, the, the story is different for Moon, but it's also part of the planetary um, protection. And um, there are um, examples uh, on, on how to deal with that. One example is um, to say, look, you can mine something at the South Pole, but leave the North Pole. Yeah, don't touch it. Because it's a similar environment, um, also similarly interesting from a scientific perspective, um, but currently not really um, addressed by any of the overall architectures. So the idea would be to um, to set up, um, yeah, restricted zones, areas on the moon um, where no mining um, uh, is allowed to take place, in order to preserve that natural environment. Of course, it's not so easy because once you disturb an area, say at the South Pole, through uh, because you don't have an atmosphere on the moon, um, 
through interaction um, with the regolith there, um, also contaminants and dust will circulate the whole moon. So everything you do on the moon on a larger scale in terms of mining operations will ultimately affect the moon globally, right? This is just how the, how the moon works. The moon is a rather small body, don't has an atmosphere. So um, you, you add a lot of contaminants, um, for instance, just only by landing um, mm -hmm. a space access starship. Um, I believe I, I uh, read somewhere that the, the exosphere of the moon, so all the elements um, that are in this tenuous atmosphere, sum up to about 50 tons. And uh, so you would easily add um, quantities in the same order of magnitude uh, by just um, adding the exhaust uh, gases from rockets. Mm. And then with a the mining operation, you stir up a lot of dust. This will get distributed globally. Um, water will get lost, uh, will migrate somewhere else. So once you really start a large-scale operation uh, of ISRU on the moon, um, there's no way to really protect um, these restricted areas. Although, of course, um, you can still and you should still do that in order to allow investigation of, of for instance, subsurface layers that are more protected by these um, interaction with uh, what is happening elsewhere. So um, you're saying sustainability is not just a thing on Earth, but um, one also needs to think about the effects um, those explorations could have on the moon in this case. Yeah, definitely. So sustainability um, in space exploration has many um, aspects. But uh, yeah, um, we should really um, try to regulate or try to find a regulation that uh, that fits all the purposes, um, which, as you can imagine, is quite challenging. Yeah. Do you think there is a, f a threat um, to have some monopolistic environment on the moon? Because, um, as we said, there there are not too many companies having um, the capabilities to just access and um, places like moon. And therefore, it, uh, it could be very likely that in some years um, there will be some monopole there. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's uh, quite likely, I would say. Um, there is um, there is the um, the attempt to um, to distribute the the responsibilities and the um, the obligations of, of of nations being active on the moon, um, perhaps uh, through the Artemis Accords. Um, uh, also saying that um, the operations on the moon should not interfere with each other. Um, but the question then is how is this um, uh, controlled and how is this protected? And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, it'll probably just be a Wild West scenario. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> we shall see. Yeah, it's okay. hard to predict that. Yeah, yeah it's really hard to predict. Um, we, need, we need to see. We need to wait for the future to come. Now we're going to focus on the main goals of lunar and planetary exploration. What are the main goals? Ha. <laughs> uh, that's a big question. Um, well, I would say um, the main goal is um, to expand our knowledge. Right. So this is um, um, the focus of um, all the, the the missions that are there now in, in, in space. Um, interplanetary missions, solar system exploration. Um, the, the main purpose is science, to perform science, and the purpose of science is to expand our knowledge, um, to understand how things work, um, to understand um, how the solar system works, how the universe works. Um, so this is um, the, the, the prime purpose. Um, 
of course, there's other sides to it um, as well. Um, so there's just this um, natural curiosity of of humans to to look around the corner and see what's out there, right? So the inspirational aspect uh, that keeps us exploring, not only in space, but also on Earth. And um, yeah, to ultimately perhaps expand um, humanity beyond uh, the limits of Earth. Yeah. So uh, this can be a, a motivation too. You already uh, talked about expanding our knowledge. How does lunar and planetary exploration contribute to our understanding of Earth and its history? In what ways does it impact our everyday lives? So um, we go to the moon to um, to explore not only the history of the moon, um, but by that we also explore the history of the Earth um, because um, they have a common history. They're in the same uh, system. The, the moon orbits the Earth. And um, other than the Earth, where you have... Um, um, yeah, humans living on Earth, um, weathering processes. Um, there's a lot of um, um, activity on the Earth, uh, whereas on the Moon, um, everything is recorded and preserved, uh, like in a natural history, uh, in, in a natural museum. Um, so the history of the solar system is recorded there, um, meaning, for instance, how um, the solar wind composition changed, um, how the bombardment history was. Um, and by that, we, we learn about, uh, for instance, um, how, um, how water has been delivered um, to the inner solar system, how potentially life um, evolved on Earth. So that all is interconnected in the solar system because it's not a static system. It's very dynamic. Uh, it has been uh, very dynamic uh, in the past. And, and so everything we can learn uh, from this natural uh, museum that we call Moon um, also traces back to um, what our Earth has uh, experienced. Often also is asked, uh, is it really necessary to fly to the Moon or Mars when our planet is suffering from climate change? Yeah, I mean, um, why not? So um, the the space exploration um, is, is also driving um, technological advancements. It changes the way we look uh, at our own Earth, uh, it provides us um, the um, um, the advancements that we need in order to observe our Earth and learn from our Earth. Um, so the whole um, observational aspects, um, and it's not expensive. So in contrast to what people often think, um, space exploration is not very expensive. So um, I read a figure once um, that said. The, the average amount um, that a European taxpayer in one of the ESA member states pays for um, ESA's um, entire space activities is 10 euros per year. So uh, about the same amount you pay for a, uh, a cinema ticket. And while with inflation and everything this has grown a bit, you, you can see the, number, the figure is not that uh, large. And from this you get all that ESA does from Earth observation, detecting, you know, wildfires, floods, everything that we need in order to understand what's going on here on our planet, uh, but also the whole exploration. So going to Jupiter, um, for instance, um, so that all um, is interconnected. And um, we need space exploration. Um, I'm, I'm convinced we need space exploration in order also to 
um, yeah, expand our knowledge, but also to satisfy our natural curiosity and, and find out um, what happened, for instance, on, on other planets um, like Mars, yeah, how the climate changed, uh, changed there and what, how this affected um, everything that was going on on that planetary surface. Um, so if we were just looking um, um, around here on Earth, not being able to, um, to look from space, um, to look into what's going on elsewhere in the solar system, um, uh, that the knowledge what we would that we would have right now would be much 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 less, and we wouldn't be able to understand really how to fight climate change. Yeah, there's so much knowledge we can obtain from space exploration that will help us on Earth. And also, um, when thinking back of the um, podcast we did with Professor Walter, he also said that it has a big impact on on your mindset just leaving um, the system Earth. To, to enlarge your horizon and then um, think that, uh, think about possibilities, solutions um, for um, having positive impacts. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We tend to think in, um, in, in boundaries here on Earth, whereas uh, once we are out there, um, these boundaries disappear, right? And that also helps a lot in driving political decisions or, or motivating to, um, to change one's mind. Yeah, so um, potentially in the next um, decades, um, could, could, could I look um, up to the sky at night and um, to the moon um, with some professional telescope and then see a moon base where, where, where people live on the surface of the moon? Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, but, um, I mean, the, um, the moon base really um, is still many years in the future. Um, Which time frame are you thinking of? That's a very good question. And... Um, so maybe we will see something in the next um, decade in terms of a, a rudimentary base. Um, it might be by the Americans, might be by the Chinese. Um, you know, the, the long-term visions or strategies, they don't really go that far um, as it stands right now. Um, but we're working towards that. And um, so giving a, a time... Um, for that the date is, is really difficult but um for for humanity just in general we might be um right now on the verge of um calling moon our second home because it could happen in the next decades yeah so we will for sure see um a in um not a permanent um but uh, uh an intermittently uh, occupied gateway uh, around the moon and later on we will see stations where from time to time people will uh, work and and live um, maybe not permanently at first, but then, yeah, with time. Um, <laughs> would this be restricted to science? Or I would assume there must be some point where there is also this idea of having some sort of tourism, especially when prices for bringing mass up in, up up to those places um, will be cheaper. Yeah, I, I guess we can expect that uh, space tourism will always play a role. Um, so um, definitely. Um but science will be the main driver, at least I hope. <laughs> um, then um, commercial activities, um, we shall see how they evolve. But um, this this will be necessary. Um, I th I don't think we can build up a uh, a station on the moon without this commercial um, aspect or with the ecosystem of mining and selling space resources, because otherwise it will just not work. A moon base will not be possible uh, if we rely on bringing everything from Earth. Um, and this is this is for sure. 
Yeah, so we will see science. That, and, that, uh, that's, that's where um, the resource utilization comes into play. Exactly. So resource utilization, and that will probably not be um, driven by, by agencies, but by commercial partners. So um, we have both yeah. sides. We so, will have both. Yeah. Technically, then it would be absolutely possible to achieve some environment on the moon where humans could live. But uh, what, what would be um, physiological and psychological challenges still to be faced? I mean, there's a, there's, um, there's a few challenges um, along the way, um, not only the resource aspect, but also things like uh, navigating, communicating. Uh, this is why we want to set up a, a global navigation network around the moon, for instance. Um, in terms of psycholo uh, psychological challenges, Of course, we have the, um, the extremely long um, lunar day and night cycle, but it depends on where the station really, um, really is and um, how it will be um, operated. So perhaps people will um, change back and forth from the gateway and the station, you know, and uh, not be there during nighttime. Um, that also depends on the way we provide power. Um, to a lunar base, um, if it's solar, then we are um, we're restricted. Uh, so yeah, uh, psychological aspects are a thing, but and are a problem. Um, but I think not so much actually for for lunar uh, operations because um, the moon is uh, very near. Um, you can always get back. You're not that remote. So in case of an emergency, you can travel back to Earth rather quickly. Um, you can always go back. You don't need a certain window as for Mars transits, for instance. Um, so, and you always see the Earth. Um, and that also uh, feeds into psychological problems a lot. So really, I think that is less of an issue for Moon, much less as compared, for instance, um, to Mars exploration. Yes, and like uh, going to Mars would take so much more time. There are only specific... Um, time windows where you, where you can go there and when and where you can go back to earth and um, that would definitely be much more challenging than for moon yeah the journey is longer and just a um just a mere aspect of um the earth getting smaller and smaller and at some point you maybe don't even see it properly uh that is a big factor i believe yeah now we want to talk about your future in academia which direction are you targeting for your future research Yeah, um, well, the, um, the long-term perspective is certainly um, to build instruments um, that fly to the moon and beyond. We are currently working on that. Uh, we have different um, contributions in, uh, in actual missions and um, we all want to, want to explore other places too. Um, this is why my group is called Lunar and Planetary Exploration. So planets or planetary bodies are also part of the, of the game. And um, so this is this is the long-term goal, or the maybe not so long-term goal actually, to um, to be able to provide instrumentation for Europe, um, Europe space exploration programs and contributions to other missions, uh, and really bring hardware to to places where um, no one has ever set foot before um, or assist with lunar exploration and um, provide the methods to, um, to um, produce breathable air on the moon. Um, for these uh, yeah, successes, you need collaborations. Are there any collaborations with other chairs? 
Yes, of course. So um, the space um, group here at TU Munich is um, still growing. Uh, we are currently four professors um, working on topics like um, satellite development, propulsion, um, life support systems. So um, naturally, there are um, there are some links. Um, for instance, um, ISRU also means providing propellants for rockets. So we're currently working on a concept that shows uh, extraction of ice from regolith um, all the way down to that ice being used to propel a rocket. So an end-to-end -end demonstration of that concept. Um, and this is in con uh, in collaboration with uh, Professor Manfletti's chair. Um, there's other natural uh, interfaces to uh, Professor Detrell's chair um, who is uh, working on life support systems uh, which are um, also sort of at the end of the ISRU chain, uh, the utilization part. Um, so uh, we are collaborating closely there too. And um, for the small satellite developments, um, we're also collaborating a lot because we build instruments that we want to fly on small uh, satellites. Um, for instance, one development that we're currently pursuing is a dust detector that can ultimately also be used to characterize dust in the lunar environment. And um, yeah, as small satellites are becoming more and more important for exploration, um, for instance, we had small satellites uh, on the DART mission recently that impacted um, an asteroid. Um, we had small satellites accompanying um, Mars missions. So um, yeah, this is also um, a growing field in space exploration. So there are very many links to the other chairs and we're very closely collaborating here at the Ottobrunn site. Um, now, also um, speaking about future missions, are there any upcoming lunar or planetary missions that you find particularly exciting or promising? Lunar. Lunar? Lunar, yeah. <laughs> um, well, basically, um, <clears throat> all of them are exciting, right? Uh, I mean, um, so I'm, I'm more excited by those uh, who actually land on the surface and operate on the surface. Um, and... Um, I'm I'm really um, keen on seeing the um, the next landers landing successful there because this means we are actually entering that new era of um, having commercial um, transportation services to the moon, which for us as scientists researchers um, is the opportunity to bring uh, our instruments there and perform our research not only here in the labs in an analog environment but there on the moon. So this is very important for us. Of course, human landings on the moon um, will also be um, fascinating in itself. Uh, so um, I'm very much looking forward to the Artemis 3 um, mission um, where for the first time after the Apollo era, um, people will uh, set foot on the moon again. Um, potentially then in the next years also with a European astronaut. So this will be particularly interesting for us. So these these are the ones I'm looking forward to, but uh, I really cross fingers for for all of the um, future missions um, that to be a success because um, yeah we we rely on the success of every mission to really um, um, sustain that current um, that that current race to the moon, if you will. For for the crewed mission, that's um, definitely history being made again. Um, but right in the beginning, I asked you um, in the this or that crude mission or rover mission and uh, you said rover mission could you also explain why this is uh, so interesting for you 
Yeah, I mean that's a that's a long-standing um, dispute between um, people uh, advocating for robotic exploration, others for human exploration, uh, space exploration, and um, uh, you definitely need both. So it's not a um, it's not a question um, one or the other. It's always one with the other. And um, but I myself. Do more fo- do focus more on robotic missions because uh, I also want to go to um, to other places uh, farther out in the solar system and this is um, just very um, difficult with humans currently so I, this is why I favor the robotic. yeah yeah I definitely see the see the point there um, how do, how do you see the role of robotics shaping the future of lunar and planetary exploration? Um, would you say this is um, just the first step? So the role of robotics is to um, so in in um, in lunar exploration will be to assist humans and um, yeah complement um, the activity of humans because for some tasks you need humans for some tasks in very extreme environments for instance you need robots so um, they complement each other. Um, in the long term, this will uh, probably stay that way. Um, I don't see that uh, one or the other will will get more dominance over um, over the other. So, um, yeah, it's about the the human uh, robotic uh, interaction and the um, how they can work together. Before we now come to an end, we have like or I have one last question. What advice would you give to aspiring researchers or students? interested in pursuing a career in lunar and planetary exploration? Uh, do it, is <laughs> the immediate response. Um, so the times um, are pretty good right now um, to, um, to um, step into a career in, uh, in the exploration world. Um, naturally, I mean, exploration also starts here on Earth. So explore... Your study program, explore places to go, um, universities to study, um, to spend like a summer semester, um, explore companies, do your internship there, um, take your time during the study um, because that that is what pays off in the end. Do projects. We have a cool student group here where you can engage in cool projects. There's other projects provided by ESA and DLR gain hands-on experience, you know, just uh, look around you and uh, find out uh, what's for you uh, and um, and train yourself. So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't matter if, if your study then takes like six months longer than uh, the regular um, study program. Uh, if you have gained a lot of experience um, doing cool things and there's a lot of opportunities, especially here at TU Munich with the student group and uh, with um, the courses we offer and with the... Um, connections that we have to industry or to the agencies. Um, so um, approach us, the professors, the um, the research uh, assistants, um, if you're interested. And um, yeah, just uh, explore the space around you. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Reis, and for the great insights in your field of research. Thank you. Be sure to stay tuned for future episodes and don't forget to subscribe or like this episode. Thank you for listening.